Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your audio source for news in Hoosier Law. Brought to you by Taft. I'm Jordan Morey, Managing Editor of the Indiana Lawyer and your host. Wherever you're listening from today, thanks for joining us. Today's show will open with some recent headlines before going into a one-on-one interview with a leader from the Hoosier legal community. This week's guest is Legal Services Corporation board member Abby Kuzma. The force is strong with this episode, so let's get started. It's May the 4th, 2022, and these are your headlines. Let's start today's headlines with some law school news. Following the news last month that IU Mauer Dean Austin Parrish will step down from his post, the Bloomington Law School has announced that longtime faculty member Christiana Ochoa will serve as interim dean starting July 1st. Ochoa is currently the Executive Associate Dean, a professor of law, the class of 1950 Herman B. Wells Endowed Professor, and the founding academic director of the Indiana University Mexico Gateway. She's held numerous administrative roles, including Associate Vice Provost for Faculty and Academic Affairs for the IU Bloomington campus, and Associate Dean for Research and Academic Affairs. She's also the founding Associate Director of IU Center for Documentary Research and Practice. Her course load has included contracts, international law, international business transactions, human rights, and law and development. Her research relates to business and human rights, law and development, international finance, and foreign direct investment. Outside of the classroom, Ochoa has directed a documentary film and has served in leadership roles with the American Society of International Law and the Association of American Law Schools. Notably, Ochoa is the first Latina to hold a dean title at IU Mauer. In a statement, Ochoa said IU Mauer has, quote, an extraordinary faculty, dedicated and gifted staff, and tremendously engaged students and alumni, end quote. The IU Bloomington Provost and Executive Vice President said, Ochoa came highly recommended by her colleagues and, quote, her experiences as a human rights attorney, corporate attorney, founding center director, professor, and academic leader have prepared her for the complexities of this role, end quote. Current Dean Parrish is leaving the Bloomington Law School to become the Dean of University of California Irvine School of Law. We'll keep you updated as the search for his permanent successor continues. Staying in the legal education world, we have some new stats for you on bar passage rates at Indiana's law schools. The American Bar Association released data last month showing that graduates of Notre Dame Law posted an ultimate pass rate of 97.37% in 2019, while IU Mauer grads posted an overall pass rate of 93.68% and IU McKinney grads posted an overall pass rate of 86.97%. Those rates mark a slight increase for Notre Dame Law and IU Mauer and a slight decrease for IU McKinney. Nationally, the overall pass rate for 2019 was 91.17%, a slight increase. The ultimate pass rate measures the success of all graduates from a law school who sat for the bar within two years of first taking the exam. That means the 2019 numbers mostly show the success of 2019 graduates, but graduates from prior years who didn't sit for the bar until 2019 are also mixed in. Looking at the 2021 numbers, both IU McKinney and Notre Dame Law posted slight increases in the overall pass rates for first-time test takers while IU Mauer posted a slight decrease among first-time test takers in 2021. The ABA describes its bar passage report as one of the best measures to determine if a particular law school is offering a rigorous program in legal education to its students. Next, let's move away from law schools and into some court news. 
First up, IL editor Olivia Covington has an update on the case against the Indianapolis lawyer who has been charged in connection with the January 6th, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol. Olivia, what can you tell us? Back in March, Indianapolis lawyer Quentin G. Cantrell was arrested and charged with four federal misdemeanors for allegedly entering the U.S. Capitol during the January 6, 2021 riot. Last week, Cantrell and one of his co-defendants entered not guilty pleas to the charges, setting the case up for a possible trial. Cantrell spoke very little during the arraignment in Washington, D.C. federal court, which I listened to via teleconference. He was represented by David Issa, a lawyer based in Houston. The Indianapolis lawyer was charged alongside two of his relatives, Jared and Eric Cantrell, and the trio is known collectively as the Cantrell Cousins. Court documents say cell phone data places Quentin Cantrell at the Capitol building during the riot, while video footage shows him entering the building, then leaving about two minutes later. Also, images show a man who is allegedly Quentin climbing down the wall of the Capitol's West Terrace. The Cantrells are due back in court on July 1st for a status conference. The judge presiding over the case, Trevor McFadden of the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia, asked that all plea negotiations be completed by then so that the case could be set for trial if necessary. McFadden told the lawyers he wanted to move the cases quickly given that the charges are misdemeanors. Eric Cantrell also entered a not guilty plea during the April 27th arraignment, but Jared Cantrell did not appear and his lawyer did not know why. His arraignment was reset for today at 9.30. I plan to keep a close eye on this case, so check back with our website periodically to see what updates we've been able to report. Thanks, Olivia. Shifting to state courts, Indiana Attorney General Todd Rakita has filed a lawsuit against the Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation as part of an ongoing investigation related to the organization's use of funds donated by Hoosiers. On April 26th, the Republican Attorney General filed a verified petition to enforce a civil investigative demand that his office issued to the BLM Foundation in February. The civil investigative demand stems from an investigation into whether the Foundation's actions constituted a violation of either the Indiana Deceptive Consumer Sales Act or the Indiana Nonprofit Corporation Act. A report published in 2020 revealed that the foundation brought in more than $90 million that year and distributed about $21.7 million to 30 affiliates, including one in South Bend. However, according to the AG's office, an IRS filing for the first half of 2020 shows that the foundation had $0 in revenue, expenses, and assets during that time period. Rakita's office says it is seeking information and documents related to its investigation to, quote, ensure transparency to donors and guarantee funds donated by Hoosiers are used for their intended purpose and not for the personal benefit of BLM directors, end quote. The complaint filed this month alleges the foundation failed to respond to the civil investigative demand issued by Rakita's office, which is requesting a court hearing and an injunction against the foundation prohibiting it from fundraising in Indiana, as well as an order revoking or suspending the foundation's authority to do business in the Hoosier State. Also, the AG's office is asking the Marion Superior Court to order the foundation to fully respond to the civil investigative demand. We'll keep up with this case and let you know how it unfolds. Next up, IL reporter Katie Stancomb has a look at the recent wave of turnover on Indiana's appellate and trial court benches. Katie? Members of the Marion County Judicial Selection Committee will sit down next week to vet applicants for yet another judicial vacancy. 
a trend Indiana lawyer reporters have noticed across the state's trial and appellate courts in recent months. This time, judicial selection panelists are seeking a new judge to take the place of retiring Marion Superior Court Judge Grant Hawkins, who was stepped down from the bench on September 30th after more than 20 years of judicial service. Hawkins, who gave no public reason for his departure, is the third judge to leave the Marion County Judiciary since December 2021. Judge Cheryl Lynch resigned from the Marion Circuit Court in December 2021, and Judge Mark Jones resigned from the Marion Superior Court in January. Other judicial vacancies have increasingly sprouted up across Indiana's counties in the past few years, including in Allen, Clark, Lake, Hamilton, and St. Joseph counties, among others. Some of those vacancies are filled via election, some via merit selection, and some via gubernatorial appointment if the vacancy occurs midterm. The Court of Appeals of Indiana and Indiana Supreme Court benches have also seen vacancies in recent years. Since taking office in 2017, Indiana Governor Eric Holcomb has made 72 judicial appointments, according to a spokesperson from his office. That figure surpasses Holcomb's most recent predecessors, Governor Mitch Daniels, who appointed 66 judges during his two terms, and Governor Mike Pence, who appointed 25 judicial officers while in office. Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law Professor Joel Shum told IL that the Court of Appeals has a mandatory retirement age of 75. He says that explains the recent retirements from Indiana's lower appellate court, as well as retirements coming in the next two years. But different judge-specific circumstances could be at play in the trial court-level turnover, Shum added. Seth Lawn, a senior lecturer of law at the Indiana University Maurer School of Law, said that from his perspective as a legal practitioner, he doesn't see the increase in judicial vacancies in Indiana as being an unusual wave of early retirement or resignations. I don't have the sense that people are, you know, are leaving the judicial field, which in some ways is surprising. I mean, it's a very tough job and it's probably only gotten tougher I don't get a sense of, of people running away from that job. And I think in most places, people really, really treasure it, uh, value it, and would love to have that job. Stay tuned for more IL coverage on the issue of judicial retention and turnover on Indiana's trial and appellate courts in the coming weeks. To round out today's headlines, let's kick it back to Katie for a preview of a story about challenges facing solo and small firms, which she's working on for our next print issue. Thanks, Jordan. Cash flow was vitally important for many businesses, including law firms, during the height of the COVID-19 pandemic. One of the top concerns solo and small firms faced in the past two years was ensuring that they were paid by clients for the time, effort, and attention lawyers put into every case they touched. According to the 2021 State of U.S. Small Law Firms Report, small firms responded swiftly to that issue so much so that they saw improvement in getting paid simply by making a plan and taking action to address the problem of clients not paying due to financial hardships exasperated by the pandemic. Some of those changes include accepting new methods of payment, increasing retainers, changing marketing strategies, and more seriously monitoring billing rates, among other things. I'll be taking a look at how Indiana's solo and small firm practitioners fared when it came to getting checks from their clients during the pandemic as well as how they may have changed their practices to prevent future problems. Check out the May 11th issue of The Indiana Lawyer to read more. Thanks for those updates, Katie. All right, that's it for this week's headlines. As always, visit theindianalawyer.com for more on these stories or more on any other news happenings in the Indiana legal world. 
Stick around after our sponsor break to hear my interview with Hoosier lawyer, Abby Kuzma, who is leading an initiative focused on rural justice in Indiana. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, we have Abby Kuzma, board member of Legal Services Corporation, in studio with us today. Abby, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. As some background, uh, Kuzma was nominated to serve on the board of directors of Legal Services Corporation by President Donald Trump, and the U.S. Senate confirmed her nomination on August 1st, 2019. From 2009 to 2017, Kuzma served as the Indiana Attorney General's Office as Assistant Attorney General, Chief Counsel of Victim Services and Outreach, Senior Policy Advisor, and Director and Chief Counsel of Consumer Protection. Guzma is the founder of the Neighborhood Christian Legal Clinic and served as Executive Director from January 1994 to April 2009. Prior to that, Guzma was a Subcommittee Chief Counsel of the United States Senate Judiciary Committee and Legislative Assistant for Senator Richard G. Luger. Kuzma, an IU Maurer School of Law grad, is also currently the Holbrook Distinguished Chair of American Government at Taylor University. Abby, there are obviously so many topics that we could uh, touch on with you here today, but for this episode, we thought we would try and narrow it down to one, um, your recent involvement with the National Rural Justice Task Force. So kind of to start, uh, can you give me a little bit of a, a brief background on the Rural Justice Task Force and the work uh, done over the last year? Right, Absolutely. Well, the, we launched the Rural Justice Task Force in uh, December of two, 2021. And as with all of our other task forces, our goal is to make information available to legal services providers around the country. So including raising awareness of the civil legal issues, facing rural residents, profiling model programs, which is one of the most important pieces. You know, what works is what really matters and uh, that provide effective legal services or information to those in rural communities, and also recommending strategies for engaging private attorneys to provide pro bono legal assistance and identifying opportunities for state and federal legislative assistance. Also, just to make a mechanism for legal services providers and pro bono attorneys to do better work in whatever area uh, we're talking about. In this case, it's Rural Justice Task Force, but we've had other task forces as well. And they are, for example, the opioid task force that I was um, co-chair of, um, they are all privately funded uh, within Legal Services Corporation and really a big part of the work that we do because our goal is to really increase access to legal services and improve legal services across the country. Mm -hmm. So I looked back at some numbers. We've done some reporting on, obviously, rural justice issues. Um, so we had in September 2020, there are roughly about 2.3 attorneys available per 1,000 Hoosiers statewide. Obviously, the pandemic has happened since the, <laughs> since we yeah. did this. Um, so kind of a follow-up question to that is, has this issue continued to grow uh, across the country and specifically in Indiana since the start of the pandemic? Has it exacerbated some of the issues that we were already seeing? That's what we're seeing on the ground. Yes, uh, issues have been exacerbated, and partly because some of the problems that have been exacerbated by COVID, such as the opioid epidemic, um, domestic violence, housing, all these issues that were problematic during the epidemic 
impact rural Hoosiers and low-income families all across the state. So we know that the issue is worse than it was before. Mm -hmm. What are the legal issues that people in these rural areas have and how have they been impacted by not Well, a lot of the legal issues are uh, things uh, that, that make sense, you know, in terms of, um, you know, obviously health care is something that people wouldn't necessarily think of right off the bat, but that can be a real problem and not one of the things that we don't always think about as well is that um, an individual might not identify the issue they're having as a legal issue. So let's say, for example, that they were denied food stamps. Not everybody understands that that could be a legal issue. If they were mistakenly denied, then their eligibility is something that can be challenged, and having an attorney represent them is really important. So other issues that that person's face, obviously housing has been an issue all the way around. Uh, we've also seen quite a few issues involving um, credit and uh, consumer issues along that line as well. Uh, family issues, unfortunately, have risen during the pandemic as well. And so that would include domestic violence and other issues that um, are happening as well. Um, immigration is a big issue in Indiana. And depending on where you are, of course, Indianapolis has huge immigration um, uh, component. but. It's also in rural areas as well. Mm -hmm. um, are there any parts of the state that are having uh, seemingly more struggles than others? I know a lot of Indiana is rural, but are we seeing bigger issues in certain areas? I'm not aware of that, but I think wherever you see the opioid crisis, we're going to see bigger issues, just because that impacts everything. Think about it. Mm -hmm. if, if you have a family member who has become addicted to a, uh, a substance, um, then the likelihood of there being family issues, housing issues, job issues, you know, everything gets compounded. So, um, so wherever we would see those problems particularly exacerbated, we're likely to see all of the other problems as well. Mm -hmm. Has the growth in remote work actually helped at all um, for these rural communities? Absolutely. Actually, I think that was an unintended blessing with the pandemic is that we were forced to look to technology uh, in a way that we never have before. And, you know, it really turned out well in many instances, and especially in rural communities where, as we, you were just talking about, there, there isn't physical on-the-ground contact with attorneys in the dimension that we would, have, we, would have put, we would want. You know, there just aren't that many attorneys available to uh, low-income rural residents. So being able to access someone through Zoom or FaceTime or even the phone is, or, or internet of course in terms of uh, email, but, but what we found is things like FaceTime can be really great or Zoom can be really great so, so that you actually have a picture uh, with respect to talking to the individual, the person can access an attorney. Um, we wouldn't necessarily have thought of that before. And in some ways uh, that's more convenient certainly than uh, driving across wherever, you know, in, in rural communities, a lot of times you have to drive 40 minutes to access a legal services provider, or maybe more. Um, but uh, if you can do that through the phone, that helps a lot. Now, obviously, in most instances, you're going to have to physically be in contact with your attorney at some point. Um, that wouldn't always be true, especially if you're just getting legal advice um, or, or counsel. But if, if there is going to be a hearing or something along that line, you're going to have to have physical contact with the attorney. But being able to access uh, remotely first makes a lot of sense and is very convenient for everybody involved. So 
that's that's a really interesting piece. I think a lot of us, um, I'm still on the board of the Neighborhood Christian Legal Clinic, for example, we're, we're thinking about as everyone is coming back to work, do we want to operate in exactly the same way we did before? And those are really legitimate questions right now. Where does Indiana sort of rank among other Midwestern states and uh, with rural deserts? Um, you know, is it worse here? Is it comparative everywhere? Um, well, I know we're in the bottom 10. Okay. <laughs> so okay. it's not good. It's yeah. not good. So, but, but it is true that all across the country, this is a huge issue. It's not only uh, that Indiana that's facing this issue, but we are, we are not doing well relative to other states. It looks different in every state, too. I mean, obviously, our, our rural America is, is largely white. Um, uh, and so if you're talking about low-income families, um, in other districts, it might look different. It does look different in other districts. So, you know, it depends on where you are physically. So the, and, the, and the issues tend to be the same. Um, you know, the, the, the legal issues and the access to legal services providers is the same wherever you are. And part of the, the reason is that, you know, as uh, attorneys are spending more money, you know, in terms of student loans to get their legal degree, uh, they're less able to go to low-income communities where there economically isn't the opportunity to make money to pay back your loans. So that is a choice, unfortunately, that people are making. So some of the solutions along that line, uh, for example, the ABA uh, was was uh, forwarding on their ABA day, the idea of paying a student loan assistance, because we know that that's a problem in terms of finding attorneys who can work for nonprofits in, in government as well, but especially nonprofits, it's difficult to make that choice if you have a big student loan to pay that. So that may be something that people weren't thinking about. Another issue, of course, has always been transportation. You know, being able to get from one place to another as, uh, as a, a rural resident is just as much a problem uh, in terms of jobs as it is seeking legal services. So transportation has always been an issue for local communities as well. Has there been anything that's really surprised you being a part of this, this task force? Is there anything that you know, you've, you've learned that maybe you didn't think of before that um, people need to realize? Well, I am very, I wouldn't say I'm surprised yet because this is an, uh, an area that I've been involved with you know, ever since uh, I was involved with Neighborhood Christian Legal Clinic since 1994. So obviously, you know, we've been aware of the issues facing the rural communities, especially low-income communities from the get-go. But I will say that I'm very excited that we're focusing on, we have uh, different task forces, sections within the task force that um, are looking at different areas. And one of them is looking at uh, innovative ideas. And that is is really going to be important. I mean, that's that's always the part that I think is the, the, the critical issue that we can contribute. Because when you pull together people from all over the country, um, they have different ideas. And it's really exciting to find out Oh, well, we hadn't thought about that. So we're not there yet because we've only had a few meetings so far, but I know technology is going to be a big part of it. Some of the things that have happened in other communities, too, are partnering with libraries and um, other, other entities that are in rural communities that people um, are generally using on a regular basis. Um, so that can be a partnership that, that we've already known about. We've been working with that. 
but that could be something we might be able to use in a different way. Some some people come up with ideas of, as kind of like a, a bookmobile, you know, a legal bookmobile, you know, where you're you're physically going to the community at certain times. So that's an idea that has been used. But I know we're going to see some technology um, ideas that really work because one of the things we found uh, in recent years is that while people sometimes have a lot of trouble with Wi-Fi, they might uh, be able to access through their telephone network. So most people have smartphones and can, so we were talking about Zoom or um, FaceTime, something along that line. So they might be able to have a real connection with an attorney, even though they're in a real community. So even in some areas, of course, um, you know, telephone access is also a problem. You know, with the, the cell, I shouldn't use the word telephone anymore. I'm not even sure it means anything. But cell access is um, increasing across the country, but there are still areas where it's not great. In Indiana, I think we have, I know that we have issues because I teach at Upland, Indiana at Taylor University, and my cell phone has trouble going back and forth. So there are certainly gaps, but mostly in Indiana, I think we, we can access people um, through cell phones. So that's, that's something that, that I don't know we thought about as being a huge um, asset years ago. So that's something that we can think about. But I know we're going to come up with new ideas, and I'm very excited about that. Um, how can we get, um, you know, younger attorneys more interested? I know that, you know, student loans was a big problem as a part of that, um, but are there other ways we can support young attorneys in, in, being in these, working in these rural communities? Well, I think one of the things that we can do is um, internships that really help with the legal services programs across the state. And uh, internships can really help a young attorney see what it's like to serve uh, low-income communities. And that can be a real blessing for that person. I think it really opens your eyes about how rewarding it is to actually help people in your career and feel like you're going to work and doing something that makes a difference. So I think that can really help. A lot of those internships can be volunteer. Um, or p potentially paid, although uh, nonprofits are always struggling for funding. So uh, volunteerism helps a great deal. But, um, you know, there may be grant opportunities too. And in fact, uh, I know that the one that was launched recently um, here, um, the uh, Justice in the Heartland Expanding Legal Representation for Rural Residents, the Center for Rural Engagement, you know, so. Funding for that kind of thing can really make a difference um, in any community, but specifically in Indiana. Absolutely. Um, what else are you excited about? You know, with this World Justice Task Force, what what should Hoosiers be looking forward to? Well, I'm hoping that. Well, I'm not even hoping. I know this will happen. That at the conclusion of our uh, work, we will have a a, a packet. You know, there, it's, it's practically a workbook that will be very practical. This is what we've done with all of our task forces, very practical about this is what we discovered, and then the best part about it is what can you do about it? You know, what are some some very practical steps that, that any legal services program can, can take in terms of uh, serving uh, better uh, in with the rural community? So that will be not only improving our services in terms of volume, but also improving in terms of quality. So that's something that we can just take with us and use right away. We usually also have training programs that accompany our task force work. 
so that um, you can get DOE credit for learning how to serve rural communities better. So I'm, I'm certain that we will have that at the end of our at the end of our work. What does the timeline kind of look like right now? Well, I don't think we have an end date, but it'll be probably certainly through this year we won't be done. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if we're not done this year, but we will get a lot of our work done this year. So we'll have um, uh, some good work to share soon. Absolutely. Is there anything else that attorneys should know about about the work you're doing right now? Well, just look out for it. Don't yeah. don't forget that, that we're going to have some some good product to give you that will be very practical and accessible for for everyone who is serving in this arena or people who want to serve in this arena. One of the things that um, we always lack is pro bono attorneys in legal services in uh, with respect to rural communities because there just aren't that many attorneys out there. You were just giving the quote for Indiana. Mm -hmm. So the more people who are willing to serve, uh, the better. And maybe even if they don't live directly in the area, they might be able to assist through these um, mechanisms that we will um, devise that, that make remote work better. And I'm wondering too, um, and I wish we had uh, Chief Justice Rush or someone else here to ask because she's really on top of all of this. Um, you know, how are the courts going to react in the future? They, they responded in, um, you know, providing remote services um, during the pandemic because we had to, right? Mm -hmm. But maybe some of that can stay uh, for assistance with respect to serving uh, rural communities. That would really help because physically it's really hard for a pro bono or a legal services attorney to drive, you know, I drive my, an hour a day when I'm going to class. Not everybody can do that. And, you know, two hours out of your day is, is a lot, and in some areas it might be more than that, more driving. So it would be really, really helpful if we could have that remote access to the courts the way we can. Um, and when I was an immigration attorney, and I, I still do a little, I dabble in, <laughs> on a pro bono level in immigration law, um, uh, there is the Chicago Immigration Office provides a lot of that now, and of course they didn't used to. So that's, you know, that's a new service that can be really, really helpful, especially with the initial building of the case where you're just getting a calendar date. You know, actually, I'm going to kind of build off that real quick because the, they are going to open an immigration court in Indianapolis. Um, so uh, in 2023, that's opening. Yeah. So. Um, do you see that, you know, having a significant impact for, I guess, you know, central Indiana and even a lot of southern Indiana? Because right now, like you were just mentioning, all these rural cases have to go all the way up to Chicago. Right. That's, that's, that's pretty difficult. No, that'll make a big difference. That's going to make things a lot easier. Because that's very expensive, you know. You know, mm -hmm. if you're going up to, if you have, I had um, asylum cases that sometimes uh, took four hearings. I had one even that had five hearings in Chicago. That's very expensive to go up and back like that. Um, I usually do stay all night just because I'm really cheap and I didn't want to charge my organization anything, so I would drive up and come back the same day. But that's seven hours of driving plus the intensity of the hearing itself. So it's it's not something everybody wants to do, so that'll make a huge difference in, in terms of recruiting volunteer attorneys, yeah. if nothing else, but it will certainly help all the nonprofits as well. Do you see a lot of um, a lot of conflict of interest issues um, in these rural communities because there are so few attorneys? Yes, there can be major conflict of interest uh, issues, and in fact, in some cases, 
Um, there have been counties across the country, and, and I believe there's still a couple in Indiana where the only attorneys in the area are the judge and the prosecutor. And if you have a situation like that, there's no one to represent the clients. So you, that is very common and, and a real issue. Thanks again so much for your time today, Abby. Um, as always, you can catch up on previous episodes of the Indiana Lawyer podcast on theindianalawyer.com or by your favorite streaming service.